Hello, and welcome to this all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McMurchat. And we are here today to talk about yet another fantastic poem. Our format is that we read the poem, we talk about the poem, we read the poem again. And today's poem is an excerpt from the Condoleezza Suite by Nikki Finney. Uh, this excerpt is concerto number seven, Condoleezza, working out at the Watergate. Before we dive into the poem, a quick friendly reminder that our podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, as it's also, I think, more commonly known, but it's Apple Podcasts now, I guess. But because of that, something that really helps us find new listeners and also just generally makes us feel oh so very good is when we get ratings and reviews. And so if you have the time and you like what we do here, if you could hop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review, that would be absolutely fantastic. Brings a lot of joy to our to our lives. Our poem today is by Nikki Finney. And Nikki Finney is just incredible. I'm about to list some like really exciting accomplishments. But I have to say first, Connor and I went we're at AWP. Connor was representing Close Talking on a panel of literary podcasts, which was in itself a very exciting occurrence. Woo woo. Woo woo, indeed. Um, but we went to a joint program with Natalie Diaz. You can find an episode we did a while back on a poem of hers and Nikki Finney. And they were so incredible. And their readings were so powerful, and the work they're doing. I encourage you all to go look up the work that these two incredible women do because it is so important and they do it so well with so much thought and care, not only to the work they're doing, but the language that they use for the subjects that they work on. Um, both of them are doing work right now that's focused on the history of incarceration. It is just incredible to hear them talk about it. I feel so lucky that I got to be there. And I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we had pretty similar experiences. It was one of the best readings that I've ever been to. Nikki Finney, if you have a chance to hear her read. Oh, my God. Goddamn shit. Wow. I mean, she arrested the whole audience. I mean, it was like just. Wow. I mean, such command like. Whew. I mean, it, it's it was a testament because words are hard to listen to when it's like. It's just like hard to hear it, process it, understand it. That's why you have a lot of poets who speak very slowly. Uh, and that's nice. This is a very small point, but Nikki Finney read actually oftentimes quite rapidly, um, but with such forward propulsion and clarity and conviction. And also just the poem itself was insanely good uh, that everyone followed along and it was like amazing and this poem also is amazing and she's amazing i mean she's what uh this poem is from her book head off and split which came out i think in 2010 yes and won the well won the 2011 national book award for poetry for sure right um which i am reading through right now and it's amazing so Nikki Finney was born in South Carolina in the late 50s. She was the daughter of two people who were very active in the civil rights movement. Um, and so she has been involved in social justice work basically her entire life. Uh, and a lot of what brought her to poetry and the way that she wanted to do her work is tied together. That's like That's kind of the way that I've seen her write and talk about it. Those are two things that are like linked for her very much. Uh, she has a great quote. I wanted to be a poet who didn't shout, who said things, but said them with the most beautiful attention to language mm, as I a way that. of describing. Yeah, I thought that was so cool. Uh, and she's been very successful. She won the uh, Pan American Open Book Award for Head Off and Split. She also won the uh, Benjamin Franklin Award for Poetry. And she holds the Provost Distinguished Service Professorship uh, she is the Provost's Distinguished Service Professor of English at the University of Kentucky, and she's one of the founders of the Afrolatian Poets, which is for African poets from, or African American poets from Appalachia. You can find out more about that at afrolatianpoets.org. Her acceptance speech, which you can find online, and I highly encourage you to do so, 
You can find her acceptance speech for accepting the 2011 National Book Award for Poetry. And John Lithgow is sort of charmingly presiding over the proceedings. <laughs> and he does a little introduction and she comes up and she just nails it. And then he sort of John Lithgow's his way back to the podium afterwards and <laughs> says something to the effect of other people are going to give acceptance speeches tonight, but that's the greatest acceptance speech for anything I've ever heard in my entire life, which I think pretty much just sums up the level at which Nikki Finney operates right there. So yeah, this is an excerpt from the Condoleezza suite, concerto number seven, Condoleezza, working out at the Watergate by Nikki Finney. Condoleezza rises at four, stepping on the treadmill. Her long fingers brace the two slim handles of accommodating steel. She steadies her sleepy legs for the long day ahead. She doesn't get very far. Her knees buckle, wanting back last night's dream. Dream number nine. She's 15 and leaning forward from the bench, playing Mozart's piano concerto in D minor alone before the gawking disbelieving, applauding crowd. Not dream number two. She's nine, and not in the church that explodes into dust, the heart pine floor giving way beneath her friend Denise, rocketing up into the air like a jack-in-the-box of a black girl wrapped in a Dixie cross. She ups the speed on the treadmill, remembering she has to be three times as good. Don't mix up your dreams, Condi. She runs faster, back to the right, finally hitting her stride. Mozart returns to her side. She's 15 again, all smiles and relocated to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains, where she and the Steinway are the only black people in the room. Damn. Whoa. <laughs> That's so good. I know we usually do a narrative rundown at the beginning, but I think this one's pretty obvious. It's about Condoleezza Rice. I guess, quick background on who Condoleezza Rice is. She was, for the first term of George W. Bush's administration, the National Security Advisor. So she was in a very prominent position, um, groundbreaking as a woman of color in that position, but also somebody who then was part of the group of people who oversaw the, uh, the run-up to the war in Iraq and also presided over the war in Afghanistan and was part of the uh, group that was sort of selling the American people on the idea of WMDs in Iraq. And then in the second term of the Bush administration served as secretary of state, again, groundbreaking as a woman of color to be in that position. But again, a lot of what she was doing was working on this very conservative uh, foreign policy agenda of the Bush administration. And in this poem, basically, she gets up very early in the morning and goes to do her morning workout and is thinking back to dreams she had the night before, one dream. And both of these dreams reference real events from Condoleezza Rice's life. One is that when she was 15, she played with the... She's, she is herself a concert-level trained, highly accomplished pianist. She's played with Yo-Yo Ma. You can find videos on the internet. Um, and she played at the age of 15 with the, um, with the symphony orchestra. And then also when she was nine years old and in 1963, when she was nine was when the, uh, church bombings in Birmingham, Alabama happened. And she actually did have a friend, Denise, who she knew her family had previously lived in the South before moving to Colorado. Um, and one of her friends was one of the young girls who was killed in those explosions. I think she actually was in Birmingham when the bomb went off. I think she was she was in a different church. She was in her father's church, who was um, a pastor, which was two miles away from that church. And so this is sort of, we're with her on the treadmill early in the morning, thinking about all of these things and her just sort of trying to quiet her mind almost during her morning exercise. And it were kind of in her thoughts. One thing that's really interesting in thinking about the narrative of this poem and just generally looking at this poem is that there was this article published in the New York Times called Condoleezza Rice on Piano by Anthony Tomasini, which it seems to me pretty clear this poem is based off of. Yeah. And 
I don't know if you have somewhere you particularly want to start with this, but I was sort of curious. We'll make sure to post a link to this article. We both read it. We don't usually prepare in tandem ahead of time, but just because this article is so clearly referenced in the poem, I thought it'd be a good idea if we both did. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about building a poem like this off of something like basically a feature article on a public figure. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, because it's it's funny. Like, I mean, I think writers are all the time reading other things, even just non-artistic things and basing itself, you know, and being inspired by that. But, you know, this article, the article begins with Condoleezza Rice getting up at four in the morning uh, and is on the treadmill um, and, you know, references um, like the fact that she grew up in Birmingham and that was, you know, there when the, the, um, bomb happened and, uh, that she was, a is kind of also about her just virtuosity as a, uh, classical pianist and kind of the role that that had in her life. Um, and then also, you know, discusses that she moved to Colorado, I think, um, at some point at any rate, which, which is just, you know, Condoleezza rises at four stepping on the treadmill is like the poetic compression of the first paragraph of that article in a way. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting. You know, one thing that's, that's interesting about this poem sort of for thinking about the, um, article specifically is, you know, it's an excerpt. It's, it's part of, um, I think one, it's called the Condoleezza Suite. Um, it's got the musical vibe throughout. There's uh, Concerto Number no. 5, Condoleezza and Intransigence is the first one, which is hilarious. Um, Concerto Number no. 7, Condoleezza working out at the Watergate. Um, that's the one we're talking about. Concerto Number no. 11, Condoleezza and the Chickering. Um, Number 12, uh, Condoleezza Visits NYC. Um, and in total in the book, it's about seven pages long. Um, at any rate, this might be a weird way to start, but it's funny because uh, I used to teach when I was in my MFA uh, a year of composition, just kind of rhetoric, how to write an essay kind of thing. Um, and we had a kind of a lot of latitude about what syllabus we were going to use, what readings, et cetera. One thing that I did that I thought was interesting, at least for my own purposes, pedagogically was the, the thinking about how to say, or the, or how to tell the same story in different forms. So we had this project where, um, there's a story called Shall We Dance, I think, by Raymond Carver. Um, and there's a movie that's called Everything Must Go, which features Will Ferrell in a rare dramatic role. And it's actually quite good. Um, but that movie is based on the story. Um, and then there's uh, a, one of iconic Elizabeth Bishop poem um, in the waiting room. Um, and there's actually in her prose, it seems like kind of journals or diaries, there's basically a prose version of that experience. Um, anyway, the school project was kind of like comparing the two things which have ostensibly the same or similar content, um, but are in different forms and thinking about how you know, what do you get from one that you don't get from the other? Or what does one highlight that the other doesn't? Um, at any rate. So I was kind of immediately was like, oh, wow, this is like, I wish I had actually <laughs> knew about this when I was teaching the class, because this would be a perfect kind of comparison. Um, I mean, it's interesting just because 
the article, I can't tell if it's just because it's a news article and news feature and they're obliged to take the relatively neutral tone um, or if it's at a time when, um, I don't know, the Bush administration and the actors in it were less <laughs> universally, or maybe they're not universally, but in my head, reviled. Um, now, but, 2006 was the year the Democrats took back the House. It was a pretty... Okay. It was a pretty dark... This, this was like a low point in where public opinion was starting to turn on the Iraq war. It was becoming clear that even though, you know, mission accomplished had been declared, like IED attacks were on the rise. This was before the surge, but after mission accomplished, this was really where the political ramifications at home of the war were becoming more broadly accepted. Okay, that's helpful to know. Yeah, because the article came out in like April of 2006, I think. Yeah, and um, so it was that fall that Democrat, that, that midterm election cycle, that fall was where the Democrats took back the House. Nancy Pelosi became the speaker for the first time. Yeah, well, so I guess like, it's interesting to me, I guess here's the, the kind of, the thought slash question that I have is the piano and the per playing the piano is kind of like the counterpoint conceit of both pieces, the poem and the article um, that kind of serve to show something else about this figure who, you know, political, like really well known figure but not necessarily in a personal way um and the article in the kind of way of a profile has a sort of just interest in humanizing perhaps um and the piano is this kind of way of doing so like there's a part in the article where she's talking about like Play how playing the piano isn't relaxing for her, but it's transporting for her, you know, and, you know, you can imagine her job is highly demanding um, and needs this kind of respite or whatever. Um, for Nikki Finney, the piano is a much more charged counterpoint. Um, and obviously the the Finneys and the speakers sort of gaze on Condoleezza is much more uh, damning or at the very least pointed. Nowhere in the news article is there any mention of like the fact that classical music as a genre and as a as audience as a very, you know, predominantly white and sort of upper class uh, elite sort of institution and genre or whatever. Um, whereas for Finney, it seems like at least as an initial thing, it sort of symbolizes Condoleezza Rice's like complicity and actions in the service of white supremacy or something. I don't know. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but it's like her stepping into the classical world serves a symbolic function of her stepping into this, this white elite space. I guess that was the kind of the first, it's like the first way I had of comparing the two is like, you know, the piano, the classical music is that the vehicle and like to what end is it, is it being used? Yeah, I like that a lot. And I like what was really interesting to me about this poem is that it basically took all of the subtext in that article and made it text. And like so often poems live on their subtext or on their implied meanings and everything. And there's a lot going on in this poem still, but what it's effectively doing is it's taking all of these questions and tensions about the fact that Condoleezza Rice is a black woman and it's pulling them out and it's actually interrogating them. Whereas in this article, there's all of this laudatory language around her, but part of it's predicated on 
wow, look at how impressive this person is. Not only is this the Secretary of State, she had become the Secretary of State a little over a year before the article went out, but like she's a concert pianist and she meets with this group and she practices these classical music pieces and is technically highly accomplished on an instrument. Uh, and in a way that article turns all of its readers into that cheering audience from the poem. Uh, she's 15, leaning forward from the bench, playing Mozart's piano concerto in D minor, alone before the gawking, disbelieving, applauding audience. Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes me think of, because certainly it's like, especially this kind of article in the New York Times, I mean, it's like a New Yorker profile, which is like the more extreme version of like the coastal elite white audience. Um, like I remember reading a New Yorker profile of... Um, was this like Starcraft, like prodigy, this computer game prodigy, who's like, um, but also it was like, you know, she is Canadian, she is trans, and um, but in the the <laughs> the profile is very funny because they would make these references to classical music just like off the cuff and not explain them, and then there was a whole paragraph that they basically devoted to explaining what the phrase GG meant, which is like good game, <laughs> which is like what any person who played any computer or video game like ever would learn immediately. People it's like you say just- say that on chess.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's the level that works at. Yeah. That's hysterical. Uh, but I love that you brought that up because the, um, the NPR podcast about race, Code Switch, has a really wonderful, they did a whole episode on what they call the explanatory comma and what that means about who you're writing or creating a piece for. And so depending on when you do something, say like Condoleezza Rice, comma, national security, first African-American woman to serve as national security advisor and secretary of state, and did so under the you know first and second terms of the Bush administration, and comma, continue with the sentence. When you deploy those explanatory commas, explains what audience you're writing for. And they interviewed people who talked about like, I listen to NPR and I feel like it's not for me because every time they mention Tupac, they put an explanatory comma after who he is. And I know who he is. So I know <laughs> this isn't for me, you know, yeah. whereas, exactly what you're saying there's like a paragraph devoted to explaining good game whereas they just toss off you know references to shakespeare or you know classical music or you know winston yeah. churchill or whatever i don't know something else extremely white <laughs> yeah and, and like classical yeah yeah no the the things that writing assumes or feels the need to explain sort of um, says a lot about who they think or who they want their audience to be. Um, and yeah, and in this, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Um, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's interesting talking about making that subtext text. Um, and also just those dreams, I, I feel like are such a good thing to focus on. In the text of it on the page, which you, um, cannot hear, unfortunately, the dreams are italicized. Um, and it goes like, her knees buckle wanding back last night's dream, sort of ends this four stanza, which is not italicized. Then there's the bracket, dream number nine, end bracket. And then we have the dream number nine. She's 15 leaning forward from the bench, you know, playing the Mozart. And then it's like, not bracket dream number two and bracket and then she is nine and not in the church that explodes into dust um so they're i just say this because they're kind of like very specifically uh distinguished from the rest of the text um and it makes me you know it's very also like these two dreams are kind of like these two then you know later the other italics part is don't mix up your dreams condi um which is hilarious and a taunt um but gets at this point that the two dreams sort of represent um kind of two poles i think you know where she's from you know the 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 bombing of the church and the 
you know, the killing of those four little, the four girls in Birmingham was, is like one of the most iconic, like moments of violence in the civil rights movement. Um, and was so horrifying, but became such an emblem for the extent to which, you know, white supremacists and white supremacy would go to like maintain, you know, their Jim Crow segregation and, um, you know, their racial order that they wanted or whatever. Um, and the fact that she, Condoleezza Rice, grew up and knew someone, you know, um, who died in that violence um, is like, seems to be Finney is pointing out this as like a central pole of her identity that she is trying to not think about, right? And trying to avoid by thinking about her in the snowy white peaks of the Rocky Mountains 15 playing classical Mozart to an all white audience. The only other black person is a Steinway piano. Last poem in the suite, Condoleezza visits NYC, which is during hurricane season, sort of has a lot to do with Katrina. Um, and, you know, and there we have Bush famously, I mean, we, Kanye West's best moment, George Bush doesn't care about black people. Famously, a situation where the administration of George W. Bush, you know, so visibly neglecting black communities in a time of great need. In the concerto number 11, and interesting, this also the article brings up, but her name, Condoleezza, comes from Condolcezza, or Chedza, Condolcezza, which means with sweetness in Italian, as a kind of musical notation, like in the same way you'd say largo as slow or something like that. And and she comes from her mom and her grandmother uh, were both great um, piano players. Um, at any rate, there's this part in that one. In the future, when she plays Secretary of State on the world stage, the black keys will always be a stretch, which I feel like is great. Uh, that's really good. Yeah. Well, that's something that this you were you started off describing how the the dreams are sort of offset from the rest of the poem, and also that line "Don't mix up your dreams, Condi," which is rendered in the same way, indicating it's maybe her talking to herself or thinking those words to herself because the dreams, which are the interiority from her that we get are also italicized. But uh, when she's encountering difficulty on the treadmill, she steadies her sleepy legs for the long day ahead. She doesn't get very far. Her knees buckle, wanting back last night's dream. And the dream she wants back is playing the piano. It's this vision of personal achievement and not this other dream about systemic violence. And we've talked a little bit about how one highlights you know, a, a whiter cultural tradition and one is very much about violence done against black people and a, one of the most horrific iterations of white supremacy. And what she does in response to thinking about the dream she wants back and then almost like an unbidden thought, this other dream, both of which reference her personal history is she ups the speed on the treadmill, remembering she has to be three times as good. And it again ties into this ideology of personal achievement and there's the one side of it which is of course as a black woman she knows she has to be better just because she's held to a different standard but it is also throughout the poem returned to that she is putting a lot of value on her own personal ability to achieve or transcend what is being thrown at her and it turns then into her revisiting that dream in the rockies um and because and and uh, this is extra textual, but she, you know, as she went on to hold positions at universities where she worked against affirmative action programs and just generally has like 
been very committed to a pretty standard. She runs faster back to the right, finally hitting her stride. Mozart returns to her side, this like vision of whiteness coming to her and that her stride is back into the right is like, I think it's not a stretch to say conservative policy to the right, you know, but that what she's worked for, she was actually Democrat until the early eighties. Fun fact. Um, wow. Ronald Reagan, also a Democrat in his early days, helped promote the new deal, but Hey, we all know how that ended. <laughs> anyway uh yeah elizabeth warren republican in her early years so you know we all we all learn grow and change over our lives hopefully (laughs) but uh the point being that she has throughout her life been very committed to this idea of like personal advancement and like work rise through merit kind of ideas um that are like pretty standard right-wing ideology but that's something that is a big part of who she is as a person and what she's talked about and worked for in her life. And so it's something that this poem, again, that's a subtext that's very clear in the the feature article. And it doesn't, I think, detract from the fact that she as a person is accomplished, talented, intelligent. But this poem, I think, injects that necessary questioning and that necessary like idea of not just what does that all mean? But it also reflects that she herself might be more conflicted than a lot of her political opponents would want to talk about her being. They might want to create this like evil idea of who she is. And actually there's probably a lot going on there, you know, which I think is both of those things I think are really valuable elements that this poem takes on. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so right. That three times is good. There's like such a, I don't know if it's like attributed to anyone in particular, but there's a very common saying, um, you know, I just in, in the black community or whatever, but like you have to be twice as good to get half as far, um, yes. which separately appears on the TV show scandal, which was a great show for a couple of seasons. And then it got crazy. Um, oh my god it went it went so sideways so fast whoa (laughs) great show loved a lot of it but that was like a a big thing and you know i think the three times is good it's also it's like not just black but also black woman as like intersectionally different and having to overcome even more barriers to get as far as she did the the famous similar to the quote you mentioned but as relates to being a woman is that Fred Astaire was the greatest dancer, but Ginger Rogers did everything he did backwards and in heels. And the idea of doing everything backwards and in heels as a, as a woman, you have to, you know, you're again, it's very similar, but as you were saying, it's this intersectional point where Condoleezza Rice is a black woman. And the, the treadmill scene is such a, it's like very cinematic. It feels where I just have seen the, that scene where the character is running and they have their dream or whatever, or their flashback or whatever is haunting them. And they're just like trying to run it out, which in part is just a very effective coping strategy. Um, We know that running and exercise uh, releases endorphins and exhausts the body. I'm curious what you think about this generally, but for a poet to, it's not like a persona poem exactly in that Condoleezza Rice is spoken about in the third person. Um, but, you know, the speaker is clearly nowhere near the situation, right? And Nikki Finney, for all we know, does not know Condoleezza Rice personally or whatever. Um, we often think about, or I often talk about, or we often talk about poems as you know, trying to convey the experience of something or what it's like to do something or whatever. And in in some ways, this is in part of what it's like to be Condoleezza Rice in some kind of way or an imagining of like, oh, it's not all like, like you don't really believe all this or this game that you're playing, or at least there's something else as you were saying, that's more conflicting about like 
you know, you have this history and that doesn't just, you don't just forget that. Um, but I'm just curious, like the move for a poet to take such a big political figure um, and write, you know, seven pages of poetry, um, focusing on them. Yeah, I'm just, I'm curious what you think about that choice. Cause it's, I don't think it's often that we see those kinds of people populating poems, you know? I think that is a really good question. Um, and these poems came out in the book, Head Off and Split, which came out in 2010. So it's the Bush administration is like sort of in the wake of them being over. I don't know exactly when these poems were written, but they were published at a time when it would be like, a little bit reflecting back on, well, what did that actually mean? And that was something that was kind of going on for a lot of commentators on the left, and especially for a lot of African-American left-wing thinkers and commentators about figures like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. What did it mean that these were people who were now in a conservative Republican administration? Um, because that kind of goes against a lot of you know, the conventional wisdom, let's say, about who votes for Democrats and who looks like Democrats versus Republicans. Republicans are stereotypically whiter and conservative and older and all that kind of stuff. Thing, demographic stuff that has only sort of seemed to gather more truth over time. But um, what I was thinking, at least, and I don't... I don't want to obviously speak for Nikki Finney, and I don't know that if she has spoken on this. I sort of looked around and didn't see any definitive commentary on it. But she and Condoleezza Rice are both African-American women from the South of very similar ages. Nikki Finney's three years younger than Condoleezza Rice. And so on some level, it felt to me like this is Nikki Finney looking at someone with a similar history who took a very different path just a completely different you know, journey through life, basically. And it's her really thinking through the complexities of what it means for somebody to be Condoleezza Rice and to embody all of these different, seemingly contradictory things to so many different people, including to herself. And it's something that, like, to some degree has become kind of popular to do. The two most high profile popular culture things I can think of that are kind of like this are uh, the films, The Big Short and Vice. The Big Short about the financial crisis and Vice about Dick Cheney. Obviously that's the most relevant because um, it takes a figure from the Bush administration and it tells his personal backstory from his you know, sort of wayward youth. Uh, the point being that like there are these kind of there's become almost a genre, at least in films, of these almost drunk history-like recreations of like <laughs> these, you know, fun versions of history that cast a little bit of a satirical light and a little bit are like fun retellings that help explain to you what the hell happened in the financial crisis because who knows what a subprime mortgage is or how the whole, <laughs> you know, securities market operates. So it's this combination of explaining the past, but also in the case of Vice, it's like bringing this character out who's often treated as a one-dimensional boogeyman and then he becomes a three-dimensional boogeyman in the film. So that's fun. Um, <laughs> I think this poem and the Condoleezza Suite as a whole are doing more interesting, more complicated, more um, like thoughtful work, but it feels to me a little bit like a similar kind of investigation of the recent past going on. Uh, and this like injection of subjectivity into the history that can oftentimes get lost over time. And I, I really responded to the way that was working here. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, those are both Adam McKay films that I was referencing. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's interesting because in the same way that like, movies, popular movies or mainstream kind of pieces of culture can like be read as sort of sites of like ideological content or whatever, um, which I know is something that you have thought a lot about. Um, but 
you know, it's it's ostensibly a piece of entertainment, a blockbuster movie, but you know, when you like think about 24 or whatever the show, it's like, well, what is it saying about torture? In a, in a more general way, you can think about just like various genre tropes of, you know, like in a horror movie, like the black character always dying first or something. It's like, well, what does that say about the ways in which we think of black bodies as disposable or something? Um, and in a similar way, Condoleezza Rice is a person, yes, but also she is a figure uh, and she is kind of like, uh, anyone on the public stage is at least can be can be read as especially since she's you know an agent or an actor of a nation or an administration or whatever you know she can be a, a read as a site of some kind of content I guess for Nikki Finney um, or at least for the poem you know one thing not to get into Finney's head, because obviously we can't do that. But the poem draws out kind of like the tension between the content and the ideologies and actions that her administration and she sort of took out or was part of whatever, um, and puts that up against, you know, her, both her personal history, right? Um, but also her like historical uh, identity, you know, as a black woman, um, or at least the like the history that comes along with that. And like the, I mean, it's, it's what we've been talking about, but the kind of the tension between those two things, um, but not just as an interest maybe in Condoleezza Rice specifically, um, but like, you know, and even I think about this, I mean, people I think have talked about this with Barack Obama, but in some ways he was the, you know, when he was elected, it was like often talked about like the pinnacle, you know, it's the first black president. It's like, we've overcome some kind of racial inequality or discrimination. Um, we have this attachment to symbolic achievements in some kind of way. And we have this attachment to representation um, and representation matters. Um, there's often a tension sort of between like the symbol and the material reality of like what's actually happening, I guess. Um, I mean, in some ways it's another sort of case where the, to use the linguistic blah, 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 structural stuff of like the sign, you have the signifier and the signified. Well, it's like Condoleezza Rice is a signifier of racial progress or something. Um, and, you know, breaking the glass ceiling or whatever. Um, and yet the signified is in fact quite the opposite. But to some degree, Condoleezza Rice maybe is also embodying that ideology in some kind of way of a respectable, you know, this is like the achievement of respectability politics is you get Condoleezza Rice, a gifted classical pianist who's in the White House. Yeah. Um, and then in a much broader sense, perhaps just to really try to generalize a lot, is just, I think about, you know, there's another part in the suite where in also in Concerto 11, and the chickering, by the way, is I think her piano, or the kind of, the kind of her piano. Um, at the end of it, it sort of says, no one inside her inner circle will suggest how else the dawning new day might sound if she would only, just this once, take her eyes off the score. Um, which I think is very interesting. And again, is sort of showing how Nikki Finney has this sort of extended metaphor, quite brilliantly how she's using sort of the language and um, the details of classical music and music to 
to make this metaphor in sort of like new complex ways. Um, but that there's a kind of script and that or a score that Condoleezza Rice is following. Um, and I guess in a broad sense, even if you're, you know, someone who's not like a conservative, um, you know, if you're like, if you're like a black person who's trying to play the game or, you know, feels like that's the only way to survive or something uh, is to not get angry or be respectable or blah, blah, present yourself in certain ways in this kind of way or work twice as hard or whatever produces perhaps a similar kind of tension that the poem about Condoleezza Rice is sort of drawing out in a more extreme way where you have on the one hand, the 15 year old successful pianist and the other hand, the horrifying trauma of the Birmingham bombing. No, I think it's an excellent point. And I, uh, I was lucky enough to meet and get to know a federal judge, African-American guy uh, who is a civil rights leader. And he, Damon J. Keith, he recently passed away uh, in his mid nineties, but he would tell stories about what it was like to be a black federal judge to have reached this huge, he was on the appellate court. It's the one level below the Supreme court. It's this incredibly high level of achievement. Uh, and one of the stories he would tell, which I don't think I've told in the podcast before, but uh, he had just been named the chairman of the Bicentennial Committee. And so there were going to be plaques with his name on them put on every courthouse in the country that had the um, the Bill of Rights on them. And, and it was going to have his name at the bottom, every federal courthouse in the nation. You can go and see these plaques. They are there. It was for the Bicentennial of the Constitution. And he came out from his hotel at the meeting that he had just presided over of every federal judge in the country where they had voted to have him do this. He gave a speech and everything. He came out and this guy walked up to him and said, boy, park my car because he was a black guy in a suit outside of a hotel. And so this guy just assumed that he was a, a bellman. And this was a story that Judge Keith would use to illustrate the fact that it didn't matter that he'd gone to law school. It didn't matter that President uh, Johnson made him a district court judge or that President Carter made him an appellate court judge or that some people think if you know George... Bush senior hadn't become president in the late eighties that he might've had his name put forward as a possible Supreme court judge. None of that mattered in that moment. In that moment, what mattered is a white man saw a black man well-dressed outside of a hotel and his brain said, ah, you're probably a bellman." Uh, and he also had stories about how he and his law clerk who'd like gone to Harvard would go to a restaurant and get seated at the worst tables. It didn't matter that they were in suits and that he was an appellate court judge and that he was with a Harvard graduate. In, who was his law clerk who was going to go on to have a stellar legal career. Like none of that mattered because in that moment, what mattered is that they were black. And so those were stories that he himself would use to sort of illustrate why respectability politics and this notion of achievement fails in a lot of instances because it does not go after the structural underpinnings. Um, and I feel like some of what, Nikki Finney does with the Condoleezza suite and with this poem in particular is works against a potential version of narrativization of Condoleezza Rice's life story. Cause I think you can almost imagine the eventual biopic where by the luck of a, you know, by sheer luck, she escapes violence in the South and works incredibly hard to become a concert pianist and, goes on to rise through the ranks and gets noticed as a bright young you know, political operative and then becomes national security advisor and becomes secretary of state and writes best-selling books. And there's always wild speculation about will she or won't she run for president? And she never decides to because she serves in other ways. Um, and like all of that is factually true about her life. And as we were saying, like she's on paper and in reality, an incredibly impressive person, but that doesn't really get to the actual truth of what's going on. It tells one clean conventional story that leaves out the important complexities that Nikki Finney is constantly pointing back to and drawing out. And I think that these 
poems feel to me almost like a preemptive intervention against that kind of storytelling about, as you were saying, like a complicated figure, public figure like Condoleezza Rice onto whom so much is written and assumed and discussed and how much she's held up as a symbol. This puts all those symbols and signs in conversation with each other, as opposed to saying, think this about her, think that about her. This is saying, these are all of the things that people think about and say about and use the person of Condoleezza Rice for. What does it mean that that's what we do with somebody like her? Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you have any other thoughts? I don't think so. Shall we read it again? I think we got to read it again. All right. The Condoleezza Suite excerpt, Concerto Number 7, Condoleezza Working Out at the Watergate by Nikki Finney. Condoleezza rises at four, stepping on the treadmill. Her long fingers brace the two slim handles of accommodating steel. She steadies her sleepy legs for the long day ahead, and she doesn't get far. Her knees buckle wanting back last night's dream. Dream number nine. She is 15 and leaning forward from the bench, playing Mozart's piano concerto in D minor, alone before the gawking, disbelieving, applauding crowd. Not dream number two. She is nine, and not in the church that explodes into dust, the heart pine floor giving way beneath her friend Denise rocketing her up into the air like a jack-in-the-box of a black girl wrapped in a Dixie cross. She ups the speed on the treadmill, remembering she has to be three times as good. Don't mix up your dreams, Condi. She runs faster, back to the right, finally hitting her stride. Mozart returns to her side. She is 15 again, all smiles, and relocated to the peaks of the Rocky Mountains where she and the Steinway are the only black people in the room. everybody this is jack again thank you so much for listening this is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you if you have ideas for future episodes comments on this or any of our past episodes different readings of poems than the ones that we offered we want to hear it uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on twitter the show is at close talking i am at jack rossiter munn and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is CloseTalkingPoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CloseTalking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available in addition to iTunes on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.